Indeed, thank you very much to the Breakfast Show for kickstarting another day. But don't go away because coming up in a minute, we've got Diffusion, a half hour of science. This week, we've got the battle of the robotic household cleaning appliances, making your skin softer with nanotechnology. But I'm not sure that that's entirely a good thing. And of course, all the latest science news. That's coming up in the next half hour of Diffusion. So stick around. indeed and welcome to diffusion the best half hour of science radio in the western spiral arm of the galaxy if you're listening in sydney on 2ser or across australia's community radio network or if you're a techno literate type listening to us on a podcast doesn't matter welcome to the show my name's chris stewart this week we've got vacuum cleaners set to kill nanotechnology in your skin cream but is it good for science and of course up first we've got tilly belen with all the latest science news Well, there's finally proof of the existence of the Yeti. But no, it doesn't prowl on the peaks of the Himalayas. It skulks deep below sea level. It's white, blind, and it's ready to bite. Nature Online outlined the discovery of the 15-centimetre-long crustacean, which was, the, which was first named the Yeti crab because of the long toothbrush-like bristles that cover its front claws and legs. Diffusion has been unable to contact the original Yeti about this discovery, but we believe that the two creatures are not directly related. The underwater Yeti was found on the edge of a newfound hydrothermal vent located approximately 1,000 kilometres south of East Island in the, in the South Pacific. The actual function of the bacteria covering the bristles is still unknown, but crustacean experts have suggested that they may be used to comb for edible materials from surrounding water or mud. The distinctive Yeti crab has now become the first member of the new crustacean family, Kiruadi, which was named after Kiwa, the Polynesian goddess of shellfish. Still in the water, but a little to the west, researchers have found some unexpected results about the effect of shark nets. The beaches of South Africa have used nets to protect swimmers for more than 50 years, but they've long been thought to have a damaging effect on shark populations. A study by researchers in South Africa and the United States was published in an international journal, Marine and Freshwater Research. It was the first to use data collected over the last 26 years about the number of sharks caught in the nets to scientifically quantify the effect on a variety of shark populations. Although the study found evidence of a decline in some of the 14 commonly caught local shark species, the role of the net in these drop in shark numbers varied greatly between species. Overall, the data analysis showed that the shark nets probably had no major effect on the majority of the African shark populations over recent years. The most likely culprit for the decrease is probably trawl fishing by South Africa and its neighbours. 
But it seems that sharks aren't the only population in decline. The Melbourne Commonwealth Games may well be the last time we see non-genetically modified athletes compete. Sports scientists have speculated to the magazine Australasian Science that genetically altered athletes could be competing as early as the Beijing Olympics in 2008. The World Anti-Doping Agency has considered genetic doping an increased threat for a while now and it was added to their prohibited list of substances and methods in 2003. Gene therapy is based on a simple idea. The aim is to replace, enhance or cancel the effect of a patient's existing genetic makeup by introducing new genetic material. There's been a global research effort to develop this sort of gene therapy technology and it could eventually be used to cure diseases like diabetes and Parkinson's. The major worry for the sporting world is the increased opportunity for illegitimate use of gene therapy techniques. Athletes may soon be able to introduce extra genes to boost growth hormone production in muscle tissue or enhance oxygen metabolism by blood cells to unfairly enhance their performance. One of the main dangers is the side effects of the therapy which can be numerous and unpredictable. The only trial of this technology as a medical treatment was carried out on 11 severely immunocom- immunocompromised boys in France. They did show an, in, an improvement in immune response after the therapy, but three of the boys also developed leukemia. It's clear there's a long way to go before genetic therapy will be used for general medical treatment. So enjoy the games while you can. One day, athletes could be competing with superheroes. From superheroes to supercomputers... One of the world's most powerful supercomputers has simulated a moment in the life of a virus. Nature Online outlined how the computer model, detailed in the journal structure, is the first simulation of a whole life form in atomic detail. Researchers chose a virus with a relatively small and simple structure called the satellite tobacco mosaic virus. The computer program reverse-engineered the dynamics of all the atoms making up the virus and the drop of water that it was in. The program was run on the supercomputer uh, on several hundred different processes in parallel. The resulting simulation shows one million atoms of the virus and runs for 50 billionths of a second. Interestingly, the model shows that the virus coat collapses without its genetic material inside. This suggests that the virus doesn't insert new genetic material into a complete coat when reproducing as previously thought but that it builds its coat around genetic material. Ultimately, computational biologists would like to simulate larger viruses for longer periods, but this sort of technology may one day show us processes, pathways and mechanisms in the organisms around us that we've never even dreamed existed. You are listening to Diffusion Radio, the best half hour of science in the week. Well, this week on Nature.com, 
I found a story which was about nanotechnology. Now, we've all probably heard of nanotechnology by now. It's about building things down at the level of atoms, right? A nanometer is 10 to the minus 9 meters. That's the size of an atom or several atoms put together. So nanotechnology is about building things down at that level, sticking stuff together one atom at a time. But this article wasn't about the latest advances in nanotechnology. This article wasn't about new research at the atomic level. This article was about how many new products are out there that are being advertised with nanotechnology being used as one of the features of the product. One example might be the latest skin cream that you're using to make sure that your skin has that right kind of glow. Now with added nano goodness. This how, does, is, how does that work? How do they get nano machines into... Well, let's, let's just be clear here for a second. Nanotechnology is not all about nano machines. Nano machines kind of conjures up the image of tiny little devices and motors and things with miniature atom-sized cogs and so on, and that's certainly one aspect of nanotechnology. But nanotechnology can also be about, for example, in the case of medicine, tiny little clusters of atoms and molecules which are designed to deliver just the right amount of a product to the right part of your body. I see. And so these companies are claiming that for example, the skin cream is able to get down into your pores and just give you the right amount of fluids and nice oily bits to make you all right. But it's doing it at the nano level, and these are the claims that are being made. And so this article in Nature.com is saying, this is incredible. The number of products out there on the market that have been advertised in the last year that are claiming to be using nanotechnology has doubled. And this is quite extraordinary. Now, there have been two reactions to this. One reaction has been from environmentalists. Because there's a bunch of environmentalists out there who are going, well, this is evidence of the amount of nanotechnology that is getting out there into the world, and there's no control over this. I mean, what if your skin cream goes absolutely mad? What if there is stuff about the nanotechnology within these products that we haven't researched yet? We don't know what it's going to do. It's a little bit like, you know, genetic modification. We don't know what that does when it gets out there into the ecosystem. What about all these little nanoparticle things that we don't know what they're going to do? So these guys have been getting a bit upset. Well, I, I mean, is, has anyone asked them what exactly is the nanotechnology that they're putting in there? Well, this could be part of the problem. And this is getting onto the second reaction to this, which has been a bunch of other scientists who have been saying, what does this all mean anyway? Maybe this is just marketing. So I went and did a little bit of research. Went on Google, as you do, and put in nanotechnology, science, and just to make sure that I came up with something interesting, um, skin care. And I came up with a couple of absolute rippers. These were, these were the top two. One was an article from a, a website called nanovip.com. So you you know you know this is this is going to be good stuff. That sounds like a um someone's grandmother can get into nightclubs really easily. <laughs> nano VIP. No, this is nano VIP. And uh, and this is talking about nano skin tech products. And you you know that you can really trust it when it's all written in capitals, right? Oh, nice. Um, and there's a there's a company called BioNova, which produces customized skincare products using nano complexes that get delivered to the cells in nano quantities, 100% ind indigenous to the human. Human body and claims no virtual side effects and perfect absorption. I want to know what a virtual side effect is, yeah. as opposed to an, as opposed to an actual side effect. There's a virtual side effect, but this is talking about nanotechnology in phrases like nano complexes. 
Now, I don't know what a nanocomplex is, but I'm guessing that the little trademark symbol that follows nanocomplex probably means it doesn't exist outside of this website. So <laughs> BioNova, I'm, I'm guessing, is probably not forefront of biotechnology. I'm also getting, guessing that the company called Beyond Skin Science, TM, probably is also not getting a hell of a lot of research council funding out there. Now, these guys are talking about nanotechnology inspired by the nanotechnology that's in use mm. in chemistry. Their range of products uh, uses formulas with active ingredients that are many times smaller than one one hundred thousandth the diameter of a human hair, allowing the ingredients to fully penetrate the skin, get down into the follicles. follicles. Now, any molecule in your skin cream say, wouldn't it be... is much smaller than a human hair. It's all made up of nanotechnology, isn't it? So one, if you, yeah, if you one possibility down. here is that nanotechnology has become the buzzword if you're using chemicals. Guess what, people? Mm. It's all chemicals, right? I think what's really inspiring me is that that term inspired by. Yeah. That's right. yeah. yeah. So it's not actual nan- nanotechnology. It's just inspired by, in the same way that the latest Hollywood blockbuster mm. was inspired by actual events. But that kind of led me on to thinking a little bit about something which is a bit more serious. Because what I guess I'm getting at here is that the the use and abuse of scientific terminology can be very, very harmful, not just to advertising on television, but to the actual science. Because if you're reading on your latest bit of skincare product that uses nanotechnology and you have any kind of idea about the science, you're going to start looking at nanotechnology science in a bad light. This is kind of similar to some of the stuff that was discussed last night at the University of Sydney Forum, Scientific Controversies and Public Understanding, the stem cell debate. Stem cells, embryonic stem cells. There's a hell of a lot of ethics and moral issues around the use of embryos in stem cell research. But one of the biggest problems facing stem cell research are the claims that are made in the name of this technology. And many of these claims are things like Well, when he was alive, Christopher Reeve, ex-Superman, who had his spinal cord injury and was in a wheelchair, standing up, well, not standing up, getting in front of the microphone and saying, before I die, I will walk again through the use of stem cell research. This is the kind of stuff that scientists are allowing or contributing to the public face of their research with these kinds of claims which are just not substantiated. The latest research in stem cell technology is only very, very small numbers of trials. We haven't the faintest clue where this stuff is going to go. So how's that for a nice segue? Going from nanotechnology and skin cream all the way through to Christopher Reeve never walking again. Well, I guess he's not going to because he's dead, but that's not quite my point. Anyway, you're listening to Diffusion. as uh, the beginning, really, of, a, of an exploration. That's the reason we're exploring. You don't know what you'll run into on an exploration. What the sky looks like, what the stars look like. Uh, do they still twinkle, or are they a steady light when you get outside the atmosphere?
funky tune was Exploration from a collection called, appropriately, Karma Collection. You are listening to Diffusion. My name's Chris Stewart. Well, have you ever wondered what happened to all of those Dungeons and Dragons playing nerds you knew at school? Hang on. I was a Dungeons and Dragons playing nerd. Where is this going? Did they go on to be doctors or Nobel Prize winners? Or are they now 30-year-old virgins still living with their mums? Well, instead of slaying ghosts and goblins, some of them are now hacking into vacuum cleaners and battling them against each other for the title of Roomba Champion. What are we going on about? Matt Clark explains. When's the last time you looked at your vacuum cleaner and thought, how can I get this thing to bring me a beer? For some of you, and I'm looking at the uni students here, maybe the better question is, when's the last time you looked at your vacuum at all? Well... What if I told you there is a rapidly growing number of people all around the world who are taking up this challenge? They're actually hacking into their vacuum cleaners to make them bigger and better, building them up to be more than just a vacuum, but a robot capable of performing a huge range of tasks, including the bringing of beer, or even fighting other robots. The vacuums I'm talking about are made by a company called iRobot. Yes, just like the Isaac Asimov book and the movie starring Will Smith. They're not widely available or known about in Australia, however, but I'm glad to say that I've had one of these little wonders for over a year and it works great. These little round robots are called Roombas and are about twice the size of a dinner plate. They run off rechargeable batteries, have a vacuum inside them, and methodically move around your house, sucking up whatever they find. To help them get around, they have a number of sensors to stop them from falling downstairs or to tell them to go in a different direction because they've run into a wall, some piece of furniture, or your cat. They'll clean your average size house in about 40 minutes while you're out doing something else. But enough about vacuuming. A lot more interesting is the reason why so many people are feeling the need to play around with these little suckers. It's the dream of most young boys to one day build their own robot and have it going around performing cool tasks like doing your homework or annoying your sister. Sadly, the lack of a degree in robotics has held most of us back, keeping that dream just out of reach. Until now. When the Roomba came along, it enabled people to get over that first technical hurdle, simply by opening a box. It comes ready-made as a steerable, powered robot that can move at a pretty good speed. So instead of mucking around putting brains into your robot, armed with a little bit of computer knowledge, you can simply edit the brains that are already in there. This is what they call hacking the Roomba. Hacking into the programming of the robot to get it to change the way it moves, access its sensors, or even add some of your own. iRobot quickly cottoned on to this idea, and instead of making it more difficult for people to do these kinds of things, they are actively encouraging it. In fact, they're so willing for people to hack into their vacuums that they freely give away their own programming code and have gone so far as to provide a large quantity of the robots to United States universities to aid students studying robotics. And since October 2005, all Roombas now come with a special serial command interface specifically designed to connect to your computer. But... What happens when you get two guys in the same room, each holding a robot they've just created? Of course, it's time to discover who can belt the crap out of the other robot. And so, Roomba Cockfighting was born.
Picture a room full of those guys you knew at school who would play Dungeons and Dragons instead of football or cricket, each trying to psych each other out before the match by reciting endless lines of Monty Python's Holy Grail. Then it's on. The robots are unleashed and the pocket protectors fly. Perhaps there's a bit of an exaggeration, but the competition is still there. At the moment, instead of mutated robots flying at each other in a blur of sharp-edged weapons and broken plastic, it's more of a miniature-scale sumo wrestling match. Each robot is remote-controlled via Bluetooth-enabled phones, with the winner pushing the other robot off the table. But the possibilities are there. We have the technology, and we have the beer. I think it's time we brought them together at last, for the benefit of all lounge-loving football watchers everywhere. What could possibly be better than something that can bring you a beer while cleaning the floor at the same time? We can work on curing bird flu next week. I take offence to that entire story. Matt Clark there with all the latest on warring robot vacuum cleaners. If you want to take part in this great new techno pastime, apparently you can buy your own robotic friend from most good electronics retailers. What nefarious plans you program into them, that's up to you. This is Diffusion. You are listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Well, the last thing we've got for you today is a little bit of science news that didn't quite make the news. Tilly, you got something about the year. I do indeed, Chris. Uh, there's new research that has just been done at the Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, on the cochlea. Now, the cochlea is the key organ that we use to hear, and it's curled into a spiral, uh, which is often thought, which is previously thought to just be a spiral a space-saving mechanism in the ear rather than anything of any value. Now, this is, this is the spirally bit in, inside the yeah, ear. Yeah, the spirally and, bit that looks like a snail. Yeah, and my understanding of this Danish. one... Or a Danish. Or a Danish. Or something else that's in a spiral. Mm. Can we get past this? Um, <laughs> my, my understanding of how this worked was that you've got what is basically a long tube and it's thick at one end and thin at the other end. And the way that it picks out different frequencies is that the different frequencies or the different notes of sound high frequencies and low frequencies, correspond to different thicknesses of the tube. And so it's the thickness that's important, and then you curl it up to save space. Yes, well, that that is true. The higher frequencies you do hear at the broader end of the, the mouth and the lower frequencies down further up the tube in the smaller bit. But the new research looks like that the ear is actually more sophisticated than we ever thought. Cool. Yeah, um, it looks like um, that the actual... The actual curves focuses the sound waves at the spiral's outer edge, making it easier for us to hear um, smaller vibrations like 20 hertz. Mm. So, the, I mean, because what's going on inside the spirally bit, it's, you know, it's not just this big trumpety thing that, uh, that suddenly goes, oh, I've caught some sound, quick send that off to the brain. You've actually got little hairs inside there, and those hairs will vibrate backwards and forwards with mm-hmm. whatever vibrations being picked up by that bit of the tube. So what you're saying here is that the, the actual shape of that spiral is focusing it down, I, I'm presuming, yeah. down onto those hairs. Absolutely, making it easier for the vibration-sensitive cells That's very to pick cool. It up. It's very cool. And this research will now uh, affect the way that artificial cochlear implants uh, are designed and made. So at the moment, an artificial ear isn't using this curling up device. No, not at all. They just thought it was space-saving, so they didn't replicate it in the artificial ones. We didn't know we need it. Now we do. We can make better ears. 
Yeah, so everyone that can't hear us very well now will uh, end up hearing us better in the future, hopefully. Thanks to that Danish-shaped bit inside your artificial ear. You heard it first on Diffusion. architecture in Helsinki there to take us out. That's all we've got in this edition of Diffusion. If you've enjoyed the show, then send us an email. Tell us all about it. Diffusion at 2ser.com. Just drop us a line and say hi if you like. My name's Chris Stewart. You've been listening to Matt Clark, Tilly Boleyn, Jackie Peffer. And Jackie, in fact, has been doing all of the panelling on tonight's show, which means she's been sitting over there on the other side of the desk, pushing all the buttons and sliding all the slidey things. As usual, the show is produced up here in the plush velvet studios of 2SER in Sydney, and we go out Australia-wide thanks to the Community Radio Network. Plus, if you're technically inclined, you might be listening to us on our podcast. And I'm proud to say that last week we were up there in the top, like, three podcasts on iTunes. How cool is that? Thank you to everyone who's been listening to us. If you want to go and find us, you can go to iTunes or feeds.feedburner.com and just do a search for us. We're Diffusion. We're going to be back in another week's time with more great sciencey goodness. So tune in same time next week for Diffusion. <laughs>